Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where in this episode, we shall be looking into The Mummy's Shroud from 1967. It's probably worth me saying just before we start that I still do have a little bit of a cold. Well, actually, that's a lie. I've got a full bone. I've got a full blown cold. But hey, I've got my trusty lemsip here, so yeah, we should be fine. I'll also say that I have started to get a little bit of feedback from the podcast, and generally, it's been pretty positive, and I'm really happy about that. I'm glad people seem to be enjoying it. However, one of the comments that has come up a few times is. A few people would like me to be a bit more conversational in how I do the podcast, so I'm just going to try that for this episode and we'll see how it goes. If you do particularly like this way of doing the podcast, or vice versa if you hate it and you'd rather me go back to doing it in the old way, feel free to send me a message. You can get hold of me at mummymoviepodcast at gmail.com. I'll make sure that this email address is also written in the description for the episode. And I'll also put it in the bio for the podcast as a whole. So it will be around. You should be able to find it, hopefully. But I would I would really love to hear from you. Other than that, the format of the episode is going to be the same as usual. So we'll start with a little background information on the film. Then there'll be a section on the historical accuracy. And finally, I shall review the film. Right. Let us get started. It is 1920, and we have just crept through a long-lost tomb, and have entered the burial chamber. As we clear away the sand of four thousand years, we uncover the body of the boy king, Kartu Bey. Covering the body is an object which, unbeknownst to us, will cause our doom. On top of the body is the mummy's shroud. Unfortunately, 
I was unable to track down any information on the budget for this film, but according to the documentary The Beat Goes On, The Making of the Mummy Shroud, it was incredibly small. This isn't exactly surprising as most of these films have tiny budgets to be honest. We are talking about B-movies after all. If you've watched the previous two Mummy movies, it's kind of noticeable in fact, as there's a lot of reused props from The Mummy 1959 and The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb. This was the last film directed by John Gilling for Hammer Horror Productions. He had previously worked on, to be honest, better received films such as The Reptile for Hammer Horror. And from what I understand, he had quite a turbulent relationship with Hammer Horror Productions. It's quite clear that he was a bit fed up of Hammer Horror by this point because he and Anthony Hines wrote the script for this film in just five days. The film was deliberately set in 1920 to predate the find of Tutankhamun's tomb, and there is quite a lot of inspiration from the find of Tutankhamun. For instance, Harry Newton, who's played by Tim Barrett in the film, was based on Harry Burton, the photographer for many of the artefacts from the tomb. Further, Stanley Preston, who's played by John Phillips, is based on Lord Carnarvon, although I will say it's not the nicest portrayal I've ever seen, as he's not a particularly nice person in this film. Um, Basil Walton, played by Andre Morel, I think it is, was inspired by Howard Carter. Also in the film, you have Paul Preston, the son of Stanley Preston, who is played by David Buck. Claire, the linguist in the film, is played by Maggie Kimberly, And finally, you have Eddie Powell, who was actually known for frequently being the stuntman for Christopher Lee, ironically including in The Mummy 1959. In this one, he actually plays the mummy in the film. Now we shall move on to the section on the historical accuracy of the film. We shall start with the pre-credits scene, which lasts for about 10 minutes. It's a bit ridiculous, actually, but it basically explains the origins of the mummy in the film, who's named Prem, who's the slave of the boy pharaoh, Kartu Bey. It's probably worth just saying that, as far as I can tell, all of the characters in this film are completely made up, regardless of whether they are modern or ancient. And so... For instance, the pharaoh in the film isn't a real pharaoh. Kartu Bey is a made-up character for the film. Prem isn't a real character either. The flashback scene takes place in 2000 BCE, meaning if we are to take this quite literally, it will be about the 11th dynasty. As this dynasty lasted from about 2150 to 1990 BCE, very roughly, we, we can't have exact dates this far back. As is pretty common with these films, this was almost certainly just a year that was plucked randomly from the air to sound old. But the 11th Dynasty and 2000 BCE is actually a really interesting time to set this film in. To explain why, we need to go back to roughly about 2200 BCE. At this time, we have the collapse of the Old Kingdom. Although it's far more complicated than I'm about to explain, essentially we have a guy called Pepi II, 
who reigned for a really long time. There is some evidence he may have actually reigned for 94 years and lived to 100, but realistically his reign was probably shorter than that. Either way, because he reigned for so long, all of the people that could become pharaoh after him had all grown quite old, and so it led to a lot of shorter reigns. And as such, there was kind of a weakening of the position of pharaoh. At this same time, you also get a lot of nomarchs ruling in different parts of Egypt. So a nomarch is basically like a governor, and they'd slowly been gaining more power over time. So basically, because the pharaoh is losing power and the governors are gaining power, it leads to Egypt becoming deunified and these different nomarchs or governors start basically ruling as kings in different parts of the country. It's only around about 2000 BCE, so the setting of this film, that Egypt once again becomes unified as a single country again. I hope that makes sense. It's a bit of a gross oversimplification, to be honest, and it's really hard to explain this quickly. But anyway, moving on. But also in the scene, we have a man riding in a chariot being pulled by a horse. This was done in ancient Egypt. You did have chariots, you did have horses. However, they didn't actually arrive in Egypt till about 1600 BCE, so about 400 years after the setting of this film. Interestingly, even before chariots and horses arrived in Egypt, you didn't really have wheels either. I mean, you had pottery wheels and things like that, but they didn't have wheels for, like, say, transportation. Later in this scene, we see the pharaoh celebrate the birth of his son. During this, he wears a capresh crown, which I did mention, I believe, a couple of episodes ago. This crown actually first dates to about 1600 BCE, so it wouldn't have been around in 2000 BCE, and it was also usually worn by the pharaoh in war, so he wouldn't have been wearing it at the birth of his son. I don't think he's about to start fighting his son, that would be a bit ridiculous. Further, also in the scene, you have one of the servants who's by the bedside of his wife, and he has a false beard on. False beards were actually really only worn by the pharaoh, and as they were a sign of kingship, so he wouldn't have been wearing that. Later still in the scene, we see the pharaoh's evil brother build a secret army and attack the palace. The soldiers in his army tend to have either spears or capresh swords, which are those typical, you know, Egyptian swords that are kind of curved. You know, we, I feel we've all seen them. Both of these weapons were actually used at the time, so this is at least correct. Further, these spearmen also wear quite short linen kilts and have shields, which is also correct. However, all of the soldiers in the scene are wearing helmets, and helmets were not commonly worn until about the New Kingdom. I will also say that the way they are actually fighting is not correct, and further, Although the spearmen do have the correct equipment, it is worth noting that the spears they are holding are not correct. Basically, the ones I have in the film have a triangular blade at the top, where in Egypt they tended to have a leaf-shaped blade instead. Essentially, any part of this scene that was correct is purely coincidental, I feel, and 
realistically no research was put into this scene whatsoever. We now move forward to the year 1920, where the main characters are excavating the tomb, and we'll start with them just entering the burial chamber. Firstly, there's Basil Walton, who's the man who's basically a little bit based on Howard Carter. He claims that in the canopic chest in the film, we would find the viscera and heart of the deceased. This is incorrect, as the heart was actually left in the body. However, you would find the viscera, so you would find in the canopic jars in the chest, you'd find the lungs, the liver, the intestine, and the stomach. Basil then claims that Cartu Bay is one of the earliest forms of mummification. This is, again, not right. The earliest definite mummification we have comes from the 4th dynasty, so 500 years or so earlier than the life of Cartu Bay. And arguably, even before then, there is some evidence that bodies were left to dry naturally in the desert, so that is technically a form of mummification as well. Basil then goes on to claim that a tomb guardian was appointed after the death of a pharaoh, and that the position was passed down through a family until the current day. Again, this is wrong, although from the Middle Kingdom there is some evidence of guards in cemeteries, like for instance in the cemetery at Lisht, which was for the pharaohs of the 12th and 13th dynasties, you do find some guard houses. Basil next states that the guards used to actually be the ones to loot the tombs. This is actually a little bit more correct, though most of the information we have comes from the New Kingdom. Generally speaking, it was the people who had the knowledge and access to the tombs who were looting them. So, for instance, very often, as well as the guards, even more so in fact, you'd find the tomb builders were actually the ones looting it. Usually it was a team of workers who would loot the tomb. So it, could, it may have been a family or it may have been a group of friends. So it could include both guards and the tomb builders themselves who were looting the tomb. And very often, even when the guards weren't looting the tombs, they were taking bribes to look the other way. So they were often complicit even so. Finally, in the scene... Claire refuses to read the words on the shroud as they contain the secrets of life and death. What's actually written on the shroud is just a cartouche. So, a cartouche is a depiction of a ring of rope that has the pharaoh's name written in it. Often it will be found in amongst an inscription, for instance. You wouldn't find anything else other than the king's name in the cartouche. In terms of accuracy, this film is really poor. And usually with these films, although they're not very accurate, I can at least find something to focus on that's positive. And with this one, there's just nothing. Like, there was just clearly no research done whatsoever. And I feel this is probably largely down to the fact that John Gilling, the director, just didn't want to be working for Hammer Horror anymore. And he just didn't really care that much about the film, sadly. That's the way it seems anyway. We shall now move on to the review of the film. I shall, as usual, start with the things that I liked. The 
women in the film actually seem to have a purpose outside of just being love interests. This is actually quite refreshing, to be honest with you, as they are actually kind of used to push the plot forward. Basically, every female character in the film is to some level clairvoyant, and they are used to sort of show premonitions of what's going to happen next. This is really, really goofy, but I actually quite like it, and at least it's interesting. The characters in general, in fact, are all quite colourful in this film, and when you're supposed to like a character, you do tend to actually like that character, and vice versa. If they're not a nice character, then you don't like them. For instance, there's one character called Longbarrow, who's the personal assistant of Stanley Preston. Longbarrow is quite a pathetic character, but you do find yourself rooting for him. Meanwhile, Stanley Preston basically just bullies uh, Longbarrow, and it makes you really dislike him. This was done by design, and it works. This may not sound like much, but a lot of these mummy movies aren't very good at making genuinely likeable characters, so I will give it some points here. I will also say that the mummy in this film always looks about nine foot tall due to the camera angles, and that the deaths are actually really interesting. They always come across as quite sort of slasher-esque. So, for instance, in one of the deaths, someone gets tied up in a curtain and thrown out of a top window. In another one, uh, someone gets their head slammed against a wall. And in another one, the, the mummy actually burns someone using photographs of, like, fluid. You know, that stuff you use for developing photographs. These are all kind of a bit ridiculous, but they are at least entertaining. Also, I quite like that the mummy tends to take his victims by surprise in this film and can move at a, a bit of a quicker pace, much like he did in The Mummy 1959. This kind of means that the, the victims don't come across as looking like idiots, which is actually really good. There are also one or two scenes as well which I think may have inspired later films. Like, for instance, in one part, Long Barrow breaks his glasses and this is very reminiscent of uh, Bernard Burns breaking his glasses in The Mummy 1999 with Brendan Fraser. In fact, it's kind of noticeable that they even have the same type of glasses. And to be honest with you, that was either inspired by this film or, let's face it, Scooby-Doo. Further, I will say that the actual body of Cartu Bay, the boy king, does actually look pretty convincing. It kind of looks quite leathery and sunken, like... A, a lot of mummies like the British Museum and things do look. So you can sort of see where they got the inspiration for this and they did a good job with it. Finally, in terms of the positive aspects of this film, I actually thought the mummy's death was pretty cool. Basically, after the words of life and death are read, he starts to sort of crumble into dust. At first, it's just the bandages and his skin that like basically just crumble, revealing his skull. And then, after that, his skull also, like, falls apart and just leaves sort of a pile on the ground. This was a really good practical effect, and certainly I feel if this film was ever remade, they'd almost certainly do it with CGI. I actually really miss the old kind of practical effects, because they're just so much more charming. Uh, I, feel, I feel it's a real shame, to be honest, they're not really used anymore as much. Right, now I'm going to go on to the parts that I liked for the wrong reason. 
So essentially the parts that I like because this is a B-movie and they were quite funny. Firstly, the guardian of the tomb at the beginning. He basically just jumps out at the excavation brandishing a knife and screaming. His family was supposed to have been guarding that tomb for thousands of years. And the best he can do is jump out with a knife screaming and then vaguely wander off mumbling when they point a gun at him. I just feel like he'd have a better plan than that. Although I suppose later on he does raise the mummy from the dead. So there is that, I guess. The villains in the film in general, actually, are quite funny. Because they always come across more as like Romani than Egyptian. They even have a crystal ball which they use to magically watch the heroes get killed by the mummy. This is really goofy and it does make them quite colourful. But it also shows that very little thought was actually put into this film, I feel. Now I shall go over the parts of this film that I really didn't like. Firstly, the plot was very disjointed and badly paced. For a start, the, the pre-credits opening scene to this film was far too long. Like I said, it was about 10 minutes. And it's ironic that the story it told was probably actually more interesting than the actual plot of the film. Also, there's a whole section where, because of a snake bite, Basil goes insane and ends up getting put in an asylum and then he escapes again before he gets killed by the mummy. This whole part is really, really badly laid out and it just makes the film feel very, well, like I said, disjointed as it's completely unnecessary. I feel this does show that the script maybe should have taken longer than five days to write as it was clearly very rushed. Overall, the reviews for this film were pretty poor, both contemporary and modern. And although I did give this film many positives, I will admit I got quite bored watching it. I feel that this is largely due to the pacing, to be honest with you. And it's a real shame because there are a lot of positives here. If you did like this film, in fact, I do even understand because there are a lot of positives here. But I think this was probably my least favourite of the Mummy movies up until this point. And this is largely down to the fact that the writers and director just didn't really care about this film. Thank you very much for listening. And if you did enjoy this podcast, please consider subscribing. Next week, we shall be looking at the last of the Hammer Horror films, The Blood from the Mummy's Tomb from 1971. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.